Good morning, neighbors. It's good to be here with you. Uh, we're in the middle of a series called The Art of Neighboring, and if you're new or visiting with us, my name is Weston, and we are just delighted, I am just delighted that you are here with us this Sunday morning. Uh, we've been talking through this series about what it means to be a good neighbor. And so whether you're here this morning because you are a devout Christ follower or you are here this morning because you're interested in Jesus but you're not sure that you're ready to commit to Him, or perhaps you're here only because the person that said they would take you out to lunch said they would only take you out to lunch if you came and listened to a sermon for 30 minutes, I'm glad you're here. And I think the point of commonality that all of us have is this, that we do really want to be good neighbors. I, I don't know that there's any of us who in our core, in our heart, would say, you know what, I just really want to live in strife and in contention with the people around me. I really want my life to be difficult and, and people not to like me. I, we all want to get along. I think that's part of just how God has wired us. And so we started this series off by defining terms. A neighbor. What is a neighbor? A neighbor is anybody that's close to us. It's the person that lives next to us, works next to us, uh, goes to, to class and sits next to us. It's the person that shops next to us. And Jesus told us that we should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so a neighbor is anybody close, and we should treat anybody close like a neighbor with that kind of love. Uh, the second week of our series, we talked about how we neighbor best when we lead with humility. The only people that you can neighbor with are imperfect people. There are no perfect people for you to neighbor with, and you are yourself an imperfect person. I'll just give that a second to soak in. Some of you, this was hard. Um, and so we neighbor best when we lead with humility, realizing that nobody has got it all together. Last week, we talked about the simple and timeless art of being helpful. Just being helpful, being kind, doing kind things for people. It was fun this week to see on social media, some of you were using the hashtag, uh, hashtag for our neighbors. Uh, we saw a lot of donuts went out this week to different places, businesses, schools. Uh, that's awesome. I like to call them rings of power because it feels better to eat a ring of power than it does a donut. Um, and so it was great to see some of you really putting that into practice uh, by being helpful and kind. This morning, I want to talk about a, a different kind of, I think, skill that's important for us when it comes to neighboring. And that's this idea uh, that I'm going to call faith forwarding, where we essentially lend our faith to somebody else when they don't have it. Uh, we've all been there, uh, and we, maybe we don't call it that, or maybe we don't use that term, but we've all been there in a place where we didn't have a lot of hope, and we didn't see and couldn't even understand how something might turn out in a good way. You had friends or uh, family members or maybe a neighbor come alongside you and say, you know what, we're going to get through this. You're going to get through this. And they lent you their hope. They, they let you borrow their faith until you had faith that was able to stand on its own and move forward. We, we've all been there. I know that I've been there. I've been in places in my life where I couldn't see how God was at work. And, and I wondered, God, you know, what are you doing? Are you listening? Are you paying attention? And it was people that came around me and said, you know, I, we're, we're going to get through this. You're going to get through this. God's doing something. We just don't know what it is yet. And those people let me borrow their faith until mine was strong enough to move forward. And that's what I think we're here for, is to let other people borrow our faith, to let other people borrow our hope, to let other people borrow our joy when they don't have it. Jesus tells a parable uh, about this uh, in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 15. And Jesus is 
let me just set the scene for how this parable comes into existence, because Jesus is here, and he's hanging out with what everybody else uh, in that time was calling the sinners. They're the sinners and the tax collectors, and whenever I hear that word sinners, I think Dana Carvey, church lady, it's just, it's a sickness, I just hear it, they're just the sinners, and they're hanging out there, and Jesus is hanging out with the sinners and the tax collectors, and all of the religious people, the spiritual people, these are the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, we might think of today as the preachers and the deacons and the pastors and the elders and all these people, they're watching Jesus hang out with sinners. And while Jesus is there, he sees that they are just sort of disconnected from these people who are obviously hurt and they're downcast and they're, they're ostracized by society. And I think that's why Luke records this passage, because Luke himself is not a Jewish person. He's sort of an investigative journalist looking in on this. He's recording the story, telling it for us. And I think Luke's heart resonates with this because Luke knows that he himself is an outsider. And so Jesus, in the midst of this, where he's with the outsiders, with the sinners, and the, the insiders are looking with judgment, he, he tells them this parable, Luke 15 Uh, verse 3 through following. He says this, he says, which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents, and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, this parable that we've just read is the first of three parables just like it, real real similar. And in each of these parables, we see this common theme that's so clear in this text. It's that joy brings back what is lost. It's joy that brings back the lost things in our lives. Now, like I said, this is the first of three parables. So we've got one lost sheep out of a hundred. The next parable is about a woman who's got a a very valuable coin collection. Uh, A lot of commentators think maybe it's her dowry. Um, It's maybe the only possessions that she has. She loses one of her coins, and it says that she, you know, literally turns her house upside down, sweeps everything, cleans everything up until she finds that one lost coin. And then the last parable of the set of three is the most famous. It's the parable of the prodigal son. It's the son that, that leaves the dad and takes his inheritance prematurely and goes. And the text tells us that the father... Uh, is searching for the son. He's, you know, he's standing there looking for his son because he sees him while he's a long way off, and he runs to him, and he brings him back. And in each of these, these parables, we see that it's joy that follows. That they, they get back together, and they have a celebration. They have a party that what used to be lost is now found because the shepherd went looking for the sheep. Why did the shepherd go looking for the sheep? He went looking for the sheep because he knew the joy that he would feel if he could bring that sheep back. Why did the woman look for the coins? Because she knew the joy that she would feel if she found that coin and put it back into her collection. Why did the son look, why did the father look for the son? It's because he knew the joy that he would feel when he brought his son home. In none of these do we see them scolding the sheep or the coin or the son. In none of these parables do we see that the father is saying, man, I've been working on this lecture that I'm going to give to my son when he gets back home. And it is going to be long, and it is going to be 
painful and it is going to be, you know, everything he needs to hear, I'm going to tell him. I can't wait till he gets home so I can give him a lecture. You know, the shepherd doesn't go looking for the sheep because he's like, man, I just can't wait to scold that sheep and tell it what a bad sheep it's been. I just, I'm looking forward to it. As a matter of fact, I've not eaten all day today. So that way, not only am I tired, but I'm hangry also. And it will get my absolute best because I just can't wait to scold the sheep. That's not how this goes. It's about joy. Joy brings back what is lost. Let's try to make this a little more tangible. So we had this dog for 14 years in our house, and we had to put her down recently. It was sad. It was, it was difficult in the Williams household. And uh, the dog was Gretel, Gretel the dog. We hoped one day to have a Hansel, and we didn't get a Hansel, but we had a Gretel. She was all the dog we needed, uh, mostly because she had this habit of running off periodically. And she would come back on her own terms, you know, when it was time. She never stayed away. She would run, and then she would come back. And so, you know, that was obviously sometimes really, really inconvenient because if your dog is wandering around the streets, you're afraid it's going to get hit by a car. You're afraid it might bark at somebody. You know, uh, Gretel, she could be sort of, you know, cantankerous. And so we were kind of afraid she might, you know, bark at somebody. And so we thought, you know, it, it's better if we bring her back. And so we would see her, but because she's a dog, she's faster than us. And sometimes we would chase after her, and she thought this was terribly fun. And so, you know, you try calling the dog, come back, you know, like I've got a treat. And she, you know, that would sometimes bring her back. But, you know, she was real, like, particular. Like, she was clearly bargaining with you. And so, like, I'd be like, I've got a treat. That wasn't enough. But sometimes I'd go out with a bowl of food and, like, a spoon. And, like, I would be stirring it like I had made something special just for her. And I'd be like, you, here, look what I've got here. And I'd like, like be like, oh man, this is delicious. Like I'm about to eat this. And then sometimes she would come back. But you know, some, she got wise to that. Sometimes it was good. Sometimes it was just dog food. So she, you know, she knew that that may or may not be worth her time. But the way we could always get her to come back home would be to get in the car and say, do you want to go for a ride? Do you want to go for a ride? She loved being in the car. So I, I won't forget, I was, she had gone just about, you know, a, a, the equivalent of a block away from our house, and I drove to the dog, this is ridiculous, I know, uh, I drove to the dog, and I opened up the door on the passenger side, like we're about to go on a date, and I'm like, hey, why didn't she get in the car? We're going to go for a ride. And she would always get in the car. She would always get in the car to go for a ride. And so I'd only gone like a block away, but I knew that I had to give her a ride. So I took her, you know, from being a block away to now being a couple miles away. We just took a cruise around the neighborhood. We had the window down, she had her head out, and we would drive the neighborhood and then come back home. And I remember Jenny asking me, she said, what what are you doing? The dog was like across the street. I said, I, I know, but I told the dog I was going to give the dog a ride. I felt like I had to, I felt like I had to deliver. You know, I felt like I had to give her a ride. I mean, because I, I had in my mind this, this is actually something my dad told me. He said, you never scold the dog when the dog comes back to you. You never, you never like, all right, yeah, come on, let's go. And then you put the collar on him. You're like, you bad dog. What are you thinking? Because the dog learns, the dog gets it. And so I knew that I had a limited amount of time that if I opened that door and I was like, all right, we're going back home, you dumb dog, that eventually she wouldn't get in the car. But she knew every time she got in the car, there was a ride. Now, here's how I think this works. I think in the church, we sort of play this game with God and with people that don't know God. I think we, you know, we say, hey, do you want grace? Hey, do you want God's love? Do you want a ride to heaven? 
well, come on, we got treats in here and donuts and coffee, and it's great on the inside, and come, and you get a ride to heaven. And then as soon as they get in the car, we slam the door shut. We're like, you're a sinner. You're an evil sinner. You're full of sin, and God's angry with you, and you're going to go to Ike's and smell the sulfur on you, and you're such a disappointment to me and to God and to everybody else. And we wonder, why is it that people don't want to go to church? And why is it that they're like, ah, you know, I heard about this free gift gift thing, but I'm afraid of getting in the car with you. Friends, over and over in Scripture, we see that Jesus just makes it so clear that it's joy that brings back what is lost. Jesus is the one who says, get in the car with me, and I'm going to take you to the place that you want to go. It's the Pharisees that are saying, if you want to get there, you got to follow these rules because you are inherently bad and God doesn't like you. And Jesus says, no, 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 I, you don't, you've got it wrong. I love you. That's why I came. It's that way I could take you from where you are to where you want to be. It's joy that brings back what is lost. Friends, let me tell you, it is so important that if you are here and you are a Christ follower, it's so important how you talk about God, and it's so important how you talk about the church. Let me give you a case in point. Maybe you've got this friend or coworker or neighbor you've been praying for that you're like, man, I just really hope that they would come to church because I, I want them to know and to meet the God who loves them, who created them, who sent his son to die for them. And they're going to ask you tomorrow, maybe at work, and they'll be like, hey, what did you do this weekend? What did you do yesterday? And you're like, well... You know, we, uh, you know, we go to, you know, we go to church and stuff, you know, like, like we, you know, we always go, you know, it was, it was, it was all right, you know, preacher, he showed Mr. Rogers and stuff, and <laughs> we sang some songs, it was, I don't know, it was good, you, you want to come next week? <laughs> hey, friends, don't oversell it, you know what I'm saying, don't, don't oversell that, um, the answer is no, okay, like, if you were inviting me to someplace fun like that, I'd be like, yeah, I don't, I don't think so. Thank you, though. Um, but, but, like, what if you really enjoyed today, and, like, you really felt like you started to understand some of the words of Jesus about how joy was trying to draw you in, and God wanted you to experience that joy for yourself, and, and you enjoyed the fellowship, and you, you enjoyed meeting people and talking with your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you were encouraging your faith, and what if instead of this, you were like, you know what, yesterday we went to church, and it was really good, and you know, sometimes it's hard to get there, but I'm always glad when I go because I, I learn stuff, and I, you know, it just helps me feel closer to God. All of a sudden now, I'm starting to perceive that there's something good there, that there's something joyful there, there's something I should celebrate with you. But I think the problem that a lot of us have with getting to this place where we can celebrate at church is that we don't think we have much to celebrate. What do I mean by that? Well, let me explain. So, for a while, I've read this text. I mean, like, for a long while, like, for my whole life, I've read this text, and it was about 18 months ago, maybe, maybe two years ago. I don't remember now, but I heard a, another person preach on this text, and, you know, for forever I had heard this passage, and for forever I'd heard this parable about how, yes, there was a shepherd, and there's this one dumb sheep that gets lost, and all the rest of the good sheep are there in the pasture, and, and so the shepherd's got to go find that lost, dumb sheep, and and, you know, there's 99 sheep that don't need to repent. And this guy said, you, you do realize that Jesus is speaking tongue-in-cheek because the 99 don't actually exist. There are no 99. Everybody needs to repent. And as he said that, I mean, I really felt like exposed in my soul and who I was as just being self-righteous. I don't really have another word for that. 
Because for forever, as I read this passage and I try to put myself into this scene, I, you know, I, I pictured myself as one of these 99 sheep that's left and going, well, Jesus, I, I hope you have good luck bringing back the lost to all of us who are found. And I realized, no, this is absolutely wrong. We all have to repent. Friends, we are all lost. There are no 99. And we are all drawn back by the Father's joy to join the celebration. Now, some of you are here this morning, and you know that. Like, the idea that you would be in the 99 is so foreign to you because you so clearly grasp that God had to do so much to bring you back. And you live in a place of gratitude. And I'll tell you, that is something I have discovered is this amazing gratitude for the fact that God has brought me back the same as he's brought you back. But others of you perhaps are like maybe I was in that place where I was, and you're not entirely sure that you're convinced that there maybe isn't some 99 and that maybe I didn't make the 99, but maybe you did. Um, Let me give you a few passages in Scripture that I think speak about that. Luke in particular, how about this? Luke 5.30 says this, but the Pharisees and their teachers of the law complained to Jesus' disciples. They said, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and, there's that word again, sinners? Why do you do that? And Jesus answered them, those who are healthy don't need a doctor. Sick people do. I have not come to get those who think they're right with God to follow me. I've come to get sinners to turn away from their sins. I love the way the New International Reader's Version translates that. I've not come to get those who think they're right with God to come back. Because just like if you go to the doctor and the doctor looks at you and says, you know what, you're overweight and your cholesterol is high and your blood sugar is iffy. So here's what you need to do. You need to exercise, you need to go on a diet, and you need to stop drinking, you know, uh, giant Coca-Colas, you know, like five of them a day. You need to stop with that. And you're like, uh, you know, I think I'm going to be all right. And you leave, you know, and you're like, well, I don't know, maybe there's something to it. And so you get a supersized Big Mac with a giant, you know, Coke, and you're like, maybe I'll start on this tomorrow. And that's sort of like your process. Listen, friends, if you die of a heart attack like in three days, that's really not the doctor's fault. You know what I'm saying? That's, that's like on you. That's, that's, that's your deal at that point in time because you're like, I don't need that. And Jesus is saying the same thing to us spiritually. He's saying, listen, so many of you think that you don't need me, but you so desperately need me. And yet you ignore that and you reject that. He says, there's nothing I can do for you. I have come. I have taught you that you need to repent. I died on the cross. I gave you the church, and yet you don't come to me. There's nothing I can do for you. We all stand in need of repentance. This is why Peter, is, he preaches that very first you know, evangelistic sermon in the book of Acts. Here's what he says. He says, all of you, all of you must turn away from your sins and be baptized in the name of Jesus. Jesus, you know, Peter doesn't say, well, there's most of you, some of you, one of you out of the 99. He says, all of you. We all stand in need of repentance. And we will never be able to truly join in the celebration of the foundness. We'll never be able to truly celebrate that one lost sheep that's me and you coming back. We'll never be able to celebrate what was lost being found in the coin. We'll never be able to celebrate the son coming back to the father until we understand that we are the ones who need to come back and be celebrated. We're the ones that need to be drawn back and rejoiced over by the father. That's what we need. And until we understand that, that the party is in fact for us, but not for, it's not for somebody else, it's for me, it's for you, until we understand that, we'll never be able to join the celebration because it isn't for us. Uh, this is one of my favorite things. I'll never forget this as long as I live. This happened, I don't know, six years ago, five years ago, something like that. 
I was at the medical center when they were doing that giant remodeling downstairs. Some of you may remember they, they, they shut the whole floor down. They tore everything out. They put plastic sheeting up and temporary walls. And you couldn't go from here to there. You had to go through the back and you had to go through the cafeteria and you had to go through the back hall and through the, the, the storage shed. And like you had to, they routed you everywhere. You could never get to where you wanted to get straight. And so one particular time I was coming and I visited some, some folks and I was coming down the elevator, but you couldn't go out the front of the elevator because it was closed. You had to go out the back of the elevator. And so I went out the back of the elevator by the cafeteria. And as I'm walking out of the back of this elevator, I'm fixated on getting in my car so I can get home. And some guy literally grabs me. He puts his arm around me and he says, hey, I'm so glad you're here. It's time. The party started. And I said, hey, um, that's, yeah, that's not for me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks. I appreciate it. It sounds like a lot of fun, but I'm going to go. He's like, no, no, no. You know, you just come on in. We've, we've got everything in here. We got the food. The food's in here. And we got like gifts and stuff for people. We're going to do a door, like prize giveaway thing. Come on in. And I'm like, no, I, I don't work. He's like, it doesn't matter what department you work in. This is for everybody. And so, I, I mean, about four or five times, I'm, I'm trying to interrupt this man and be like, hey, I don't even work here like I'm visiting somebody. He is perpetually like cutting me off mid-sentence, me like, no, 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 the party's over here, come in here. And he's, he's got a hold of me, and I, I mean, we're going to have to get in a physical altercation to stop this, and I'm thinking, we're going to go with it, I'm going to the party, we're going to go to this party. And so I just decided, it's time, party on, Wayne, here we go. And so he brings me, he brings me to the party, and there is this this is, I, if you work the medical center, I'm sorry, this is not a fun party. Nobody looks like they want to be there. Maybe they've all been drug off the elevator. I don't know. But they're all just kind of standing there. But there's like balloons and streamers and there's a whole bunch of food and they've got like stuff around and like it's clearly sponsored by this guy's business. He works for some, I don't know, pharmaceutical company or whatever. I don't know. And they're having this giant party and I've been drug into it. And he's like, all right now, so here you go. Have fun. And I'm like, thank you. And I, I feel so awkward because this is not my party. Like, I'm waiting for somebody to be like, so what department do you work in? I'm like, I don't. This guy just told me this is my party, because how do you explain that? Because then they're like, this isn't your party. This is somebody else's party. I'm like, I know this isn't my party. So before I can have that conversation, because I feel it's so close, because I feel out of place, I see there's an exit, and I like, I leave. Like, I go out the door while, you know, Bill, the pharmaceutical salesman, is out finding somebody else to bring into his party that doesn't belong there. I couldn't stay there because it, it was weird. It was wrong. Like, it's not my party, okay? I don't belong here. And I think that's how we get to when we're at church. Like, we sing these songs about God's amazing grace, and I've, I've been forgiven. But really, we don't sing it about us. We're like, that's for somebody else. And the reason you can't join in the celebration is because you've not come to grips with the fact that you are the one that God had to go find. You can't come to grips with that, and so you can't join the party. Friends, here's the thing, is that we have all been lost. And, and if you have come to a place of salvation and a relationship with Jesus Christ, you didn't get there because you just wandered your way back home. It's because God went and found you and brought you back. And if you're here this morning and you're thinking about Jesus and you're trying to figure your way out into the kingdom of God, let me tell you, you're not that smart you're never going to figure your way out into heaven. You're only going to get there because God found you and you surrendered to that and you said, yes, I need to be found. That's the only way there. And it's only once we realize that we have got to be found that we can celebrate this state of foundness and we can join in with this joy and with this celebration. 
And that's what we do here on Sunday morning, is we celebrate foundness. We celebrate what's lost coming back home. And it's a celebration that turns spectators into participants. It's a celebration that draws people in. You know, I, I think about this story and how this man went looking for a sheep, and it says he calls his neighbors. If you lost a sheep, what's the first thing you would do? Wouldn't you go to your neighbor and say, hey, have you seen a sheep just wandering around because it's mine? You'd ask your neighbors, wouldn't you? You'd ask them, you'd go, did you see the sheep? Because I lost the sheep. You'd ask your other neighbor, did you find a sheep? Because I'm losing a sheep. I got 99, I'm supposed to have 100. Did you see the one that went away? That's who you would ask. And what does the text say? It says that they didn't come until the party started. So every time he knocks on the door and he's like, hey, did you see my sheep? And they're like, no, I didn't see it. Hope you have good luck finding him. Good luck with that. I'm going to go in here and watch, you know, American Idol, you know. Let me know how that turns out for you. But as soon as they're there and they hear the music and they smell the food and he's like, you need to come here because we're having a party, everybody joins. It's joy that brings that in. It's joy that draws folks in. I think about it like a wedding. I love to go to weddings. I love to do weddings. I'm one of the few ministers I know that actually like to do weddings. Seriously, you can ask me about that later. Most ministers, this is true, would rather do funerals, but don't tell them that. I would rather do a wedding. I love weddings. I love the fun of it. My wife and I, if the wedding's within driving distance, we usually drive if we don't have something else to go because we like the party. We like the celebration. We like that. There's something about being there. You know, you know how it is. It's a family friend, or maybe it's a close personal friend, or maybe it's somebody you've seen grow up, and you just want to be there with them. There's something about being part of that celebration. You're there, and you listen to the service as they talk about what love is, and what God's love is, and what love looks like when it's at its best. And then you go to the, 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 the reception, and, and there's, there's, you know, maybe there's food, or maybe there's snacks, but you just people are happy. They're telling stories. They, you know, they're, they're talking about hopes and dreams and wishes, and it just kind of draws people in. And then if you go, you know, to a wedding where there's like maybe music and dancing, um, and you're not like spiritually opposed to that sort of thing, you might get up and, and you know, and have a dance. And this is good, and this is fun, and it brings people in. And, and what happens is all the people that watch are now part of the celebration because they're drawn in by that joy. And that is what I pray happens here on Sunday mornings, that we tell Jesus stories about how Jesus has done things in my life and how he's done things in your life and how he's done things inside of Scripture. And it's that joy that draws people in. And the people that don't have joy borrow our joy. And the people that don't have faith, maybe you've come here this morning and you can borrow my faith and I'll let you borrow it as long as you need it. And the people that don't have hope, they get to borrow our hope and you can borrow my hope as long as you need it until you can find your own, until the joy draws you in to the place where you get to experience and know it and have it for yourself. Friends, that's what we're here to do. But here's the deal. Our friends and family and neighbors will never experience this joy unless we take the step of inviting them, of faith forwarding them, and lending them our hope and joy until they can come and experience God's goodness for themselves. You know, I've loved this series, maybe for no other reason than I've really loved the opening Mr. Rogers clip. Now, here's the thing. I was, I've been spending a little time watching you watch Mr. Rogers. I think this could actually be a YouTube channel, watching people watch Mr. Rogers, because Mr. Rogers comes. Like, you hear the music, and some people are kind of like, but then there's something about, like, he bursts through the door like it's the very first time he's burst through that door. 
Like, like this is the first time he's ever come through that door. He didn't even know what's in this room, and he's got a big smile on his face, and he's, he's telling you how glad he is to be your neighbor. And, and you just, like, even if you want to be a curmudgeon, you kind of see him smile, and you're, this is an experiment. We did this at our house, house not that long ago. Try smiling at somebody and have them not smile back. Just, like, really smile big at them. It makes people uncomfortable, and then they're like, all right, I'll smile. That's what happens. It's just this joy that sort of like oozes out of Mr. Rogers' pores that just kind of gets people caught up in this place of joy. It's joy that brings the people back. I, I ran across this uh, Twitter stream. If you don't know what Twitter is, or are you sure we should stream? I, I've got it here. I'm going to read it to you so you don't have to be super techno savvy. Here we go. So Anthony Bresnikin, what does he do? I don't know what he does, but here, here's his story. It says, Fred Rogers was from Pittsburgh, my hometown, and my generation grew up loving this man who taught us to be kind above all. Fred Rogers was the real thing. That gentle soul, it was no act. As I got older, I lost touch with the show, which kept running through 2001, but in college one day, I rediscovered it. I was having a hard time. The future seemed dark. I was struggling, lonely, dealing with a lot of broken pieces and not adjusting well. I went to Pitt and devoted everything I had to the school paper, hoping it would propel me into some kind of worthwhile future. But it was easy to feel hopeless. One span was especially bad. Walking out of the dorm, I heard familiar music, Won't You Be My Neighbor. The TV was playing in an empty common room. Mr. Rogers was there asking me what I do with the mad I feel. I had lots to spare, still do. It feels silly to say, it felt silly then, but I stood mesmerized. His show felt like a cool hand on a hot head. I left feeling better. Days later, I got in the elevator at the paper to ride down to the lobby, and the doors opened, Mr. Rogers standing there for real. I can't believe it. I get in, and he nods at me. I nod back. I think he could sense a geek coming out, but I kept it together. Almost. The doors open. He lets me go out for, first. I go but turn around. Mr. Rogers, I don't mean to bother you, but I wanted to say thanks. He smiles, but this has to happen to him every 10 feet. Did you grow up as one of my neighbors? I felt like crying. Yeah, I was. Opens his arm, lifting a satchel for a hug. It's good to see you again, neighbor. I got to hug Mr. Rogers, y'all. I pull it together. We're walking out, and I mentioned liking Johnny Costa. He was the piano player on the show. We made more small talk. As he went out the door, I said in a kind of rambling gush that I'd stumbled on the show again recently when I really needed it. And so I just said, thanks for that. Mr. Rogers nodded. He paused. He undid his scarf. He motioned to the window and sat down on the ledge. And this is what set Mr. Rogers apart. No one else would have done this. He goes, do you want to tell me what was upsetting you? And so I sat. I told him my grandfather had just died. He was one of the few good things I had. I felt adrift, brokenhearted. I like to think I didn't go on and on, but pretty soon he was telling me about his grandfather in a boat the old man bought him as a kid. Mr. Rogers asked how long ago Pap had died. It was a couple of months. His grandfather was obviously gone decades. He still wished the old man was here, wished he still had the boat. You'll never stop missing the people you love, Mr. Rogers said. The grandfather gave Mr. Rogers the rowboat as reward for something. I forget what, grades or graduation, something important. He didn't have either now, but he had that work ethic, that knowledge of the old man that encouraged him with his gift. Those things never go away, Mr. Rogers said. I'm sure my eyes look like stewed tomatoes. Finally, I said thank you, and I apologized if I had made him late for an appointment. Sometimes you're right where you need to be, he said. 
Mr. Rogers was there for me then. So here's the story on the 50th anniversary of his show for anyone who needs him now. What an amazing story about joy bringing people in. The joy of one man who, if you think about the concept of Mr. Rogers, you could never sell that today. I'm going to walk in the door, I'm going to sit on the bench, and I'm going to tell kids' story and look straight at the camera, and then I'm going to do puppets with bad voices. <laughs> no. But there's something about that joy that draws people in. And, and everything I've read, I think that that was him and his, his life. And I think that should be us in our life because it's joy that brings back what is lost. And it's joy that we experience when we realize, man, I was that lost sheep that God has brought back. That's me. It's joy that brings us back. This morning, perhaps you're here and and you have been around the joy of God and you have been experiencing that joyfulness, but you've never surrendered to it. You've been a spectator, not a participant. This morning, I would say, why don't you go ahead and give in to that? Why don't you go ahead and say, you know what? I'm going to allow the joy of God to win me over and to allow me to become a true child of God. And then I'm going to join in the celebration of that foundness. If that's you this morning, we want to invite you to come forward as we sing this song. Others of you, uh, myself included, You know, let's take this time to say, you know what? I'm incredibly grateful. I'm incredibly joyful for what God has done for me. And let's make it a a firm conviction that this morning we will leave here filled with joy because we know that joy brings back what is lost. And we know that because joy is what has brought us back.